Hosea chapter 9. Israel's sins are punished. Some sins are mentioned, but especially the certainty of punishment. Israel or Ephraim will certainly be punished. Verse 1, Hosea 9, 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. But Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out libations of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nations. Amen. Verse 1, God tells Israel not to rejoice with exultation like the nations. All the nations are celebrating, worshiping idols, practicing immorality, enjoying health and wealth. And Israel wants to be like them. This has always been Israel's tendency. This is always our tendency. 
to be like everybody else. But God says, do not rejoice with exultation. Don't be glad about this. Don't celebrate. Don't try to be like them. Verse 1, you have played the harlot forsaking your God. How can you rejoice with them when you can't do it honestly when, and you can't do it sincerely? Because you have been insincere. You have not been men of integrity. You have been playing the harlot forsaking your God. You've been acting like a prostitute against God, your husband. You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Yes, you're getting some food. You're getting some food with your prostitution. However, your earnings that you love will disappear. The earnings that you get, the food that you get from the, the practice of your sin will disappear. Verse 2, threshing floor and wine press will not feed them. All the new wine will fail them. A day is coming when the temporary abundance they enjoy will be stripped away from them, will disappear. Verse 3, they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They are going to be exported or exiled away from God's land, that is the land of Canaan. God gave it to them, to Israel, also called Ephraim in verse 3, because Ephraim is the biggest tribe in the north. And Ephraim will return to Egypt. God promised them that if they obeyed, they would never return to Egypt. But now they're going to return to Egypt. Verse 3. Verse 3 also says, In Assyria, which is in the opposite direction, Egypt is southwest of Canaan. Assyria is northeast of Canaan. And in Assyria, they will be dispersed. They will be scattered and exiled. And there shamefully eat unclean food. Eat unclean food. Because that's going to be the food of the native Assyrians. That's going to be the food of desperation. Because they have to eat whatever they can eat. And also, according to Ezekiel 4, Ezekiel 4, 9 to 17, Ezekiel was told to cook his food over human dung because they will be so desperate for fuel that they might have to do that. And therefore, if they cook their food over human dung, their food becomes unclean. They will be forced because of their poverty, because of their lack of of prosperity. Why? Their sin. Verse 4, they will not pour out libations or drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. They're not going to have these drink offerings, and the drink offering was of wine. Wine is more expensive than water. They're not going to have that. They're not going to have anything to give to God. And even whatever they do give will not please God. Verse 4. Their sacrifices will not please Him. There's no point in performing rituals 
if you live in sin. There's no point in performing rituals if you don't believe in the purpose of those rituals. There's no point in performing these rituals to God. There's no point going through the motions. That means there's no point in coming to church. There's no point in immersion in water. There's no point in the Lord's Supper. There's no point in singing. There's no point going through the motions. Just don't do it. Don't do it at all. Well, also he says, their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. Mourner's bread would make one defiled. If one was eating the bread of the Lord while mourning for the dead, then it would be rejected by God. Deuteronomy 26.14 26.14 The people are confessing, I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Here in Deuteronomy 26.14, they say, I have not eaten of it while mourning. The sacrifices of the Lord are not to be eaten when mourning for the dead. But they're going to be mourning so much that whenever they eat whatever they deem to be a sacrifice or the bread of the Lord, it won't be acceptable. They will be considered defiled. Defiled, unclean. And it's only for themselves. There's no benefit in what they do with this bread. And it's not even going to enter the house of the Lord. They're going to be doing things like this in foreign places. And it's not offered in the proper place. So it's of no value also. It's unclean all around and of no benefit to them and to God. Verse 5, he continues with his denunciation of their rituals. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? What are you going to do when you're supposed to celebrate these festivals? When you can't celebrate them in the right way? Actually, is, is that not what is going on today with the Jews? They don't have a temple. They don't have a sacrificial system. They don't have the ability to practice the law of Moses. They don't have that because it was destroyed in A.D. 70. About 2,000 years ago, it was destroyed. So they can't do any of that. They're, the festivals of the Lord are pointless. And why did God make them pointless? He made them pointless to show that what he really cared about was their behavior, their beliefs, whether they worshiped idols and practiced immorality or not. Six, for behold, they will go because of destruction. Where are they going to go? To Egypt and Assyria. And then in six, he says, Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Egypt, meaning the refugees of the Jews who flee to Egypt, the Egyptians will exploit them. Not only that, 
But Memphis, which was a major city uh, in Egypt, Memphis was a major city in Egypt, and the inhabitants of that city will bury the people of Israel. Because there's not going to be enough people of Israel to care for one another. The foreigners have to get rid of the dead bodies or even cause them to be killed. The foreigners are going to bury them. And then in their place, weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. Whatever possessions they have, valuable possessions, will be overrun by the weeds. The weeds are going to take over whatever they own. Remember, weeds and thorns are evidences of God's curse. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, the thorns and the thistles came upon man because of the curse of Adam, uh, on Adam and Eve and all of us. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. There were no weeds and thorns before sin. Weeds and thorns came after sin entered the world. Verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Again, the prophet speaks as though it's already happened. He says, have come, have come. Because he's stressing the imminent nature of the judgment. It's similar to John and Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's at hand. It's similar to that. You must repent now. Now is the time to turn away from sin. Don't wait. It's already happening. I've already decreed it to happen. So repent now. He calls it punishment. Punishment is for criminals, right? And then the word retribution. Retribution. Whatever someone deserves, that he receives. That's retribution. Whatever is deserved is received. Equal punishment or just penalty for whatever the crime was. Further, he condemns the false prophets. Verse 7, the prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. He's saying here that prophet and the the inspired man is so-called inspired man. Just like prophet is not a true prophet, but a false prophet. Because he's calling the prophet a fool. And he's calling the inspired man, so-called inspired man, inspired by the devil, not by the spirit of God. He's calling him demented. And why are they that way? Because they preach falsehoods to the people. They preach falsehoods to the people and make the people believe in lies. The false prophets are going to be condemned because they encourage people to believe lies. He says there, because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. These people are actually grossly sinning and grossly hostile, uh, hostile toward God, but the prophets, the false prophets, don't say anything about it. They say nothing about these sins. 
Here's an example of this. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 14, Jeremiah 14, 10 to 18. Jeremiah 14, 10 to 18. Thus says the Lord to this people, even so they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, there shall be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them, neither them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I shall pour out their own wickedness on them. And you will say this word to them, let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely inflicted wound. If I go out to the country, behold those slain with the sword. Or if I enter the city, behold diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land that they do not know. Verse 8. Hosea 9.8, Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. <coughs> Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. He means not that every man and woman in the tribe of Ephraim or in the northern kingdom was a prophet or a watchman. He doesn't mean it that way. He means that they were, as a nation, supposed to be representatives of God, messengers of God to others. But they did not live up to that. They didn't live up to being a watchman, warning the others of what is to come, which is what a prophet does too. He warns others of what is to come. Instead of being a watchman, he was the snare of a bird catcher. Instead of being a watchman, he caused people to become prey. Instead of avoiding them as prey or trying to prevent them from becoming prey, he made them prey. 
Isn't that what a watchman does? Ezekiel 3 and 33. A watchman is supposed to prevent the inhabitants of his city from becoming prey to the foreigners, invading them. But when he doesn't live up to his duty, it says the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. He actually helped the enemy destroy his own people. With hostility in the temple of God. Doing everything that's contrary to what's supposed to be done in the house of God, the temple of God. Verse 9, they have gone deep in depravity. Deep in depravity. When we think of deep or the deep, we think of the ocean, right? That's how deep their depravity is, their sin is. Unfathomable. That's how deep their sin is. And he says, as in the days of Gibeah. If he has reference to Judges 19 to 21, if he has reference in Judges 19 to 21, there the inhabitants of a Benjamite city called Gibeah, they mistreated travelers. You may recall what happened. There was a man there who was retrieving his concubine and, he ha- and with his uh, servant. He stayed overnight in Gibeah of Benjamin in the open square. He was planning to do that. But then an old man sees him, not from Benjamin, but from Ephraim. But he's doing some work there. And, and so he's, an old man sees this man and his concubine there and servant and offers lodging. Well, what do the men of Gibeah do? They attack the house. They want to sodomize the man. They end up raping and murdering the woman. And it goes from bad to worse like that. Then a civil war ensues in chapters 20 to 21. The rest of the tribes hear about what happened. They are disgusted and a civil war ensues. Now, the civil war was good in that it was ordained by God. There's evidence that that was ordained by God to punish the Benjamites, especially the men of Gibeah. But all the Benjamites sided with the men of Gibeah, and therefore they all deserve to be punished. And the tribe was nearly wiped out. Nearly wiped out. So when, it, when he says there that they've gone deep in depravity, it would be the men of Gibeah trying to sodomize, but they end up raping and murdering the woman. And then they don't repent when the rest of the tribes gave them opportunity to fess up, fess up, confess what happened. And they didn't. In fact, they arranged themselves, arrayed themselves for war to fight against the rest of the tribes. And then misery. Just like that time, so it is now, it says, verse 9, he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. Chapter 7, verse 2, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Chapter 8, verse 13, Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. 
Why do people continue in sin? Because they don't think God's serious about punishing them. But he will. Therefore, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 10. Verse, uh, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. God found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. He's likely referring to the Exodus. That initially, he had hope in Israel, just as a farmer does when he approaches the fig tree, the earliest fruit. He has hope when it's about time that there is actually good fruit on the tree. But then when he approaches and inspects, comes closer, lets a little bit of time pass, he finds that actually it's worthless. It's inedible. That reminds us of Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Christ did the same with the fig tree and he used it as an illustration of the scribes and the Pharisees. At first appearance, they seem righteous. They seem okay. They seem good. They seem workable, profitable, usable. But then upon closer inspection, they find out, no, they are worthless. They're gone. Then how did Israel manifest their worthlessness, their shamefulness? Baal Peor. Do we remember what happened there? Numbers 25. When they were camped at Baal Peor, this place, what did they do? They worshiped idols and they committed immorality with the women there. They celebrated and it took a courageous man to stand up and begin to slay his own tribe, people in his own tribe, Phineas. Phineas did that in Numbers 25 because the people of Israel worshiped idols and practiced immorality. That's how they devoted themselves to shame. Remember, the name Baal in the Bible is sometimes substituted for another word, the word for shame. And here he's doing a play on words. Um, for example, one of the sons of Saul, his name was Ish Baal or Esh Baal. But he had another name in Samuel called Ish Bosheth because Bosheth means shame. So instead of saying the name of the idol, they just use the word shame to refer to the idol and the people who worship the idol. That's why he says here, they, became, they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. When we worship something, we become like that something. When we worship something, we become like the thing 
we worship. This is what he says here. Um, Psalm 135, 18. The prophet says, Psalm 135, 18. Those who make them will become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Where he describes idolatry. Those who make them will become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them will become like the ones they worship, the things they worship. The same here, he's saying, they became as detestable as that which they loved. Verse 11, As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. Their glory. And in what aspect of glory is he meaning it? He means their population. He says, no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. The blessing of children will be gone, completely disappear. That's the glory of Ephraim that will fly away like a bird. Suddenly, as birds easily fly away, quickly fly away, the same will happen to the glory of Ephraim. No more children. In fact, he continues on this path of no more children for the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 12. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. God will depart from them and God will be ultimately the one responsible for not leaving them any children. He says, not a man is left. They might be in the millions, in the tens of millions in population, but then they will become countable, very easily countable, because they will be bereaved of their own children. 13. Do they deserve this? Yes. Verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow, like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. The city of Tyre, also a nation state at times, the city of Tyre on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, on the northwest part of the land of Israel or Canaan, in that area, Tyre was situated in a fertile locality and right there at the edge of the sea. It was a place of merchants, uh, of sailors, and lots of wares would come from all around other places in Europe and Asia and Africa there to Tyre. It was a major seaport and situated on the land in a very fertile area. God says, I did the same to you, Ephraim. Ephraim, you have the Mediterranean Sea to the west. Ephraim, you have the Sea of Galilee to the east. Ephraim, you have lush land for all your cattle, for all your crops. You have it. I planted you in a pleasant meadow. But now everything's going to be taken away. Verse 13, Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Now your abundance, including your abundant offspring, will be for slaughter. 
You bore them for naught. You bore them for no good benefit to you or even to them. 14, the prophet now, this is the prophet Hosea praying. And he's praying for a confirmation of this very judgment. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. That is, even after the babies are born, don't let the babies feed on their mother. The prophet prayed that. The godly prophet prayed that. Because the prophet saw similar to the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, 16 and following, when the Apostle Paul was beholding the city full of idols, it says, his spirit was being provoked within him. In the same way, Hosea the prophet, he sees all of the evil around and he says, give them this judgment, God. They deserve it. No mercy, just destroy them. And look at this miserable way in which he's calling on them to be destroyed. Miscarrying womb. Does that not bring intense heartache to fathers and mothers? Yes. Even to grandparents. It brings intense heartache to them. And then the dry breasts. After the initial joy of birth, then the breasts are dry? You can't feed your newborn? That's miserable, intense misery. 15, all their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. A clear manifestation of their evil is in the city of Gilgal. Gilgal actually should have been a prominent memorial because that's where Joshua first crossed the Jordan River and stationed the people before they invaded Jericho. And there were very important and memorable incidents that occurred there. Yet they abandoned all that to worship idols at Gilgal. And so much so that God came to hate them. Did we use the word hate? Yes. God came to hate them, the people. It's not only that God hates sin, but he also hates unrepentant sinners. He hates them. Titus 1.16, even in the New Testament, he hates unrepentant sinners. He hates hypocritical sinners. In the example of Titus 1.16, where it says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. God detests or hates hypocrites, the persons who are hypocrites. And they deserve it because of the wickedness of their deeds. They deserve to be driven out of God's house, God's temple. Anything associated with the name of God, they don't deserve to be attached to that. 
They deserve to be driven away. And God says, I will love them no more. This is the language of an unrepentant wife practicing adultery. And then the husband says, I will drive you out of my house. I will love you no more. All their princes are rebels. Not only all the people, common people, but those who lead them are in complete rebellion. The head and the tail. Those at the top, those at the bottom. They're all corrupt. 16, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. They are unfruitful people. They bear no fruit. And then when they do bear children, whatever few children, God will slay them. Slay the precious ones of their womb. God will slay them. God will bereave them of children. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. And verse 15, 15 and 16, 13, 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Who's doing it? The enemies will do it. The invaders will do it. They will take their babies, their little ones, and throw them against sharp rocks, sharp objects, dash them in pieces, crush them, crush all their bones. And the pregnant women... They won't have any mercy on a pregnant woman, but they will take their swords and rip open their wombs. That's how God will slay the precious ones, precious ones of their womb. 17. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nations. They'll be groping here and there, wandering here and there, unable to settle down, unable to find a resting place, unable to live in peace, unable to quit being whipped and tortured by their masters, their torturers in foreign lands. They're going to be destroyed, and they deserve it. God casts them away. If they won't live up to their name in the land of the Lord, then go somewhere else. Go away from me, he says, and I will drive you away, throw you away. And why? Finally, he says again, because they have not listened to him. How many ways does God have to teach people to repent? How many illustrations, how many terms 
What is the collection of vocabulary that needs to be amassed? What kinds of parables need to be propounded? What is the inventive way in which he needs to demonstrate it? Such as Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 20, walking about barefoot and naked three years. You know, how does God have to illustrate it? Even in Hosea's case, how does he have to illustrate the need to reject sin? And if you don't reject it, you will be punished. In Hosea's case, with an adulterous prostituting wife. Because they have not listened to him. That's why the first and greatest commandment starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the first and greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It starts with the word hear, or listen. Pay attention. Not just hearing the words, because even demons know biblical truth. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. James 2.19. So if the demons have true knowledge and shudder, it doesn't help them because they don't repent. They just shudder. But a demon is better than an unrepentant, knowledgeable person. Why? Because the unrepentant, knowledgeable person twiddles his thumbs, goes on in his merry way, has fun with his sin as much as he wants, and he doesn't consider that there is a day of judgment when he'll be punished. So he doesn't even tremble. At least the demons tremble, they shudder, but the unrepentant man refuses to tremble. He just has a happy time with all of his fun. Temporary fun. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.